today uh, we're starting into the actual series. Um, the last few weeks have been introduction, and they've really just been introduction to discipleship, not as much introduction to this specific series that we're going through. But today we're starting to look at the heart and habits of Jesus. If we want to be like Christ, what does it mean to be like Christ? We need to know who he was. We need to know him as a person. And so we're going to spend the rest of the summer looking at the heart and habits of Jesus to get an idea of who Jesus was as a person. We tend to reduce him, I think, to theological ideas and not really look at the person that he was. And so, so that's what we're doing today is starting to look at the heart of Christ, and we're going to look at the idea of the heart. But before we do it, I just want to put the things for your sermon notes that uh, I'm asking everyone to write down and fill in, because we'll use these throughout the rest of the week. So our big idea is, it should be up here on the screen, to have a heart like Christ is to have a heart whose sole motive is to love the Father. To have a heart like Christ is to have a heart whose sole motive is to love the Father. So I'm going to write that in while you're writing in. in my sermon notes page. It's either the handout or in your notebook. I would write it in your notebook. The handout, if you have a notebook, the handout is a template to use. All right, so write these in your notebook. The hand, and if you don't have a notebook, then write them on the handout. To have a heart like Christ is to have a heart whose sole motive, I didn't leave myself enough room, is to love the Father. All right, and then our memory verse for this whole series, we're going to say this out loud every week throughout the course of this series, and hopefully that just gets us to memorize it. I encourage you to work on memorizing it. Is Luke 6, 44 through 45. So let's read this out loud together. No tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Did I miss a verse? Okay, let's read that again out loud, maybe with just a little bit more gusto and excitement, not like, oh, I can't believe he's making us read out loud, but wow, this is an eternal principle of God's word that is going to reshape and change my life. I can't wait to read this. Let's try it. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of.
And then our identity statement should be the next slide here, is this. God is giving me a heart of flesh to replace my heart of stone. You might want to write that in. good having babies in here and letting them learn that I make people cry. It makes everyone else feel better about it. And then the key scriptures slide. I'm uh, gonna, we'll put this up here and leave it up for a few seconds or for a few minutes for you to copy it down. There's actually a lot more than this. These are just the key scriptures for this week um, that you're going to hear this morning as we get into our content. So, As you're uh, writing it down, I want to start talking about the heart. Jesus was all about the heart. His entire focus, his his the the I would say the entire focus of his teaching, his effort dealt with the heart of man. That that he was teaching directly to the heart. Yes, he talked about some of our actions, and he talked about how our heart would act itself out in our lives, but I would argue that his entire emphasis was on the heart. And you can see this at the very beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 22a. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, or but I say that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So he takes it from the external action, which is murder, that's the thing that you do, and, and moves it into an internal thing with anger. Anger is something that you do in your heart. It's a heart issue. You can be hang you can be hangry. I might be hangry this morning. You might be hangry right now. You can be angry on the inside without acting on it on the outside, right? We've been angry without killing people. So Jesus is addressing the heart issue first and then the action that produces second. And one of the primary recipients of this were the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27 and 28. He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So Jesus talking about the Pharisees, on the outside they looked to be religious and righteous, but on the inside they were full of sin and greed and pride and all kinds of evil things. Jesus was more concerned with the condition of their hearts than he was their outward acts of righteousness. So Jesus' primary emphasis was on the heart. Sorry, this is going to feel like a lot, but this is actually the boiled down condensed version. Um, This is four pages, and I actually wrote out 26 pages for uh, this first week. So bear with me, try to keep up, but then we're going to rehash a lot of this stuff over the course of the week to really get a good understanding, which is where the notebook and the group and the daily devotions, all that stuff starts to come into play. 
center heart is uh, what I'm kind of calling this idea, center heart. Uh, when everything is working properly, our physical hearts do certain things. It circulates blood through the body, right? So this is a little science lesson. The right atrium of your heart, if I'm wrong, we have some people in here who know better than I, but correct me if I'm wrong. The right atrium receives the oxygen-poor blood from the body and passes it to the right ventricle, which pumps the oxygen-poor blood to the lungs. The left atrium of your heart receives the oxygen-rich blood from the lungs, and the left ventricle then pumps the oxygen-rich blood throughout the rest of your body. So our body is constantly having blood circulated through it, and the oxygen-rich blood comes from our lungs and starts to go through our body, and then it comes back into our heart with less oxygen, where it goes back to the lungs to receive more oxygen, and this is constantly happening 70 beats per minute or so every minute of the day. So this is, that's how our physical body works. Our, our, our physical body depends entirely on our heart to survive, right? We, we know that if your heart stop beats, stops beating, you stop living. This is how our physical body works. And this is the same with our spirit, our spiritual body, our souls, our, the person that makes us up, not just our bodies, but our soul, our, our person. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11 and 14, we read from God himself that the life is in the blood. That, that probably would be my guess, and Jim and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, our best guess would be what he's referring to that the life is in the blood when he's talking about animals is the oxygen that gets into your blood through the lungs as it's pumped through your body and it gets oxygen in it and then the oxygen is critical for us to survive, right? Genesis chapter two, verse seven, we read that, that God breathes life into our lungs to bring us to life. Genesis two, seven, the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So it was breath into the lungs that brought the man to life and he became a living being. Now in our physical bodies, there's another interesting thing that happens. With, uh, you know, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've all heard stories and seen news stories, news articles about this, but carbon monoxide poisoning. What is carbon monoxide? CO. What is it? Poison. Is it a, a liquid, a solid, or a gas? It's a gas. Okay, so... Um, what happens, how does it get into our body? Right? We breathe it in. So we breathe in carbon monoxide, and if we breathe in too much carbon monoxide, we get what is called carbon monoxide poisoning. What is carbon monoxide poisoning? A lack of oxygen, but it's carbon monoxide being passed from the lungs to your blood. How do, they do, how do they test if you have carbon monoxide poisoning? Through your blood. So they do, they do a blood test, am I right? Am I hitting this right? Okay, we have some, some men who know much better than I, than I. so if I'm, if I'm incorrect, throw something at me. I should make an airplane so just ready to hit me with it. Um, 
So, so you breathe in carbon monoxide through your lungs, then, then your lungs passes the carbon monoxide to your blood, and then it circulates through your body. And the more you breathe in, the more drastic measures they have to take to rehabilitate you. If you have a light, a light dose of poisoning, then, then they do some oxygen, some highly concentrated oxygen, right, that you breathe it in. If it's severe, they might have to put you in a hyperbaric chamber where it's an environment that's, that's entirely oxygen to help bring you out of this carbon monoxide poisoning. I think our hearts and our spirits work the same way. This is the same thing that happens in our spiritual life. Just like the heart is central to our physical life, the heart is central to our spiritual life. And everything we think, feel, worship, and do flows from our hearts. Without it, we're dead. And like our physical heart, our spiritual heart circulates everything through our entire existence, which is why in Proverbs 4.23, the, the advice is, guard your heart, for from it flow the wellspring of life. So we have to be careful what we take in. This is what we've been talking about for weeks now. What we take in through our lives, through our spirit, through our minds, what we take in, because what we take in is then circulated through our entire being, and it becomes a part of who we are, and our entire person is either nourished or poisoned by what we're taking in. Our heart circulates that over and over and over. So, what is the heart? We're trying to get an understanding of the heart so that we know what it is to have a heart like Christ. Let me ask you a question. We have maybe one or two, three people who could answer this question. Um, what, is, what is something you really, really wanted? Can anyone tell a story of something they really, really wanted? Maybe it was when you were a kid. Maybe it was when you're an adult, a job that you wanted, a, uh, a toy that you wanted. Can anyone? Yeah. And so, how would you describe, was that like, were you thinking about it all the time? Yeah? Did you have pictures of it up on the wall? Yeah, that's why I named it, because I received the book of Christmas from Ken. And I thought, well, if you want to have it, it's like a Okay. Cool. Somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Somebody else? Yeah. Oh. To Disneyland? Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, so they wounded your heart for life as for doing that. Yeah. 
<laughs> Thanks. <laughs> right. That's a good example. Good, good. Um, so, have I told you the story about my Smurf big wheel? Anyone remember that? My Smurf big wheel. I've told a few people, but I don't think I've used it in an illustration, have I? Okay. Okay, so um, one of the things I wanted when I was a kid, probably five or six years old, was a, was a Smurf big wheel. Remember what big wheels are? So they had the big wheel in the front and then two wheels in the back and you'd pedal it. They still have them? Okay, okay. So I, I was a kid, I really wanted the Smurf big wheel and it, and it was a big deal because I actually got it, right? I mean, I really wanted this thing and I can't remember if it was before... I got it, or after I got it, but it actually became, a, like it was actually in my dreams, which tells you how, how much I wanted this thing. But it wasn't a dream, it was a nightmare. So this, the nightmare was that um, I was, and I think it was after I got it, but I was running around the house, and the Smurf big wheel, because it had a big face of one of the Smurfs on the front of it, the Smurf big wheel was chasing me around, and I was just trying to escape the Smurf big wheel. So I come around the corner of the house, and I, I get to our bedroom window, and I climb up into our bedroom window, and I'm safe. But then as I'm, as I'm up in the top bunk of my, this is all in my nightmare, I'm in the top bunk of my, our bunk beds. I'm looking out the window, and the Smurf big wheel is jumping up into the window where I can see its head over and over, and that's the moment in the, in the nightmare where I do this, the silent scream, right? <sighs> and that was when I woke up, and that's what I remember. And I was five or six, and it's still seared into my memory. But I, I really wanted this thing, and it was really important to me. And then my mom gave piano lessons, and then if, you've, if you, you know, there are families, and one student comes and gets piano lessons, and sometimes the siblings kind of have to wait around. And this family, while the, while the sibling was getting piano lessons, there was an older girl, probably 13, 14, 15 years old, who was waiting around, and my Smurf big wheel was sitting there in the living room right next to the piano, and this girl decided to ride my Smurf big wheel, and she crushed my Smurf big wheel. I'd only had it for a couple of weeks, and she sat on it, and it bent right in the middle. It was plastic, right? So there's no saving it. It was just gone. And I was devastated. And this was, this was like one of the only things that I got for myself as a kid. Most of my other stuff was hand-me-downs and stuff that other kids had already played and used up entirely. And this was my thing that my parents got for me. And this girl crushed it. And I don't know her name. And I have not yet forgiven her yet. I need to pray <laughs> for my heart. But um, that, is, that is a part of the heart. That's what our hearts do. Desires come from our hearts, right? So, so when we want something, when we really want something, that comes from our hearts. Some of, them, some of them are ideas that have been kind of woven into us from the world around us. Some of them God has placed there from, from when we were born, desires for him, which are what he wants us to have. But, but our, our hearts want things. That's what our hearts do. It's where desires come from. It's where love and worship comes from. It's where also pain comes from. It's where anger comes from. These are issues of the heart. This is what the heart does. At the same time, though, as we see from Jesus, just like love comes from the heart, so does hatred 
and disgust. In fact, the very first mention of the heart in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, where it says, this is with the story of Noah, and it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then at the same time, in this very same story, we get a, a, a glimpse into God's heart. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So all of this comes from the heart. Love, worship, desire comes from the heart. Anger, hatred, disgust, and rebellion comes from the heart. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24 says, They did not obey or incline their ear, talking about the Israelites and the people who, who um, had, had been God's chosen people for a thousand years, and still they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. So you can see with the Israelites, and it's true with us, it's our hearts and the condition of our hearts that moves us forward or backwards. And so we're either going to move forward closer towards God or we're going to move backward to what I'm calling deformation. So just like in our physical bodies, the heart is the central part of who we are, Everything we think, say, and do, and project out into the world is some form or another uh, begins in our heart. The heart drives everything we do in our lives. So if we want to be transformed, truly transformed, we cannot follow in the path of the Pharisees who transformed external things and external actions and behaviors. If we want true transformation, which is what we're all about here at 6A Church, if we want to be truly transformed, our hearts must be transformed. In fact, this was the picture God had in mind with sending Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the regenerative work that he would do in us would be in our hearts. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. This is both a now and not yet prophecy of Ezekiel. It says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This is something God begins in us at salvation and then it's fully, finally complete when we are fully restored in the presence of God. To turn our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. So it's only in the transformation of our hearts that we actually become truly unique in our God-made identity. There are some, some lies that I'm going to get into that we believe through our culture and our society. Some of us think, though, that we don't really, we can't, we can't be who God made us to be without pursuing our own interests. And I, I think that's, that's actually not true. That's a lie. I think from the way I look at Scripture and the way that I've been studying Scripture is that, that it's actually when we surrender our hearts to Christ that we actually start to become truly unique in our God-made, God-designed, God-destined identity. When our hearts are cold, let me build this out for us for just a minute. When our hearts are cold and hard and for ourselves, think about it, so when your heart is cold and hard and its entire existence is for itself and getting its own needs met, when your heart is all about itself, 
we actually blend in with the rest of the human race throughout all of human history because that's how people are everywhere by their fallen nature. People have always been selfish and proud and full of themselves. That's what's normal. That's what's average. Without God, humanity tends to all look the same. They're all in it for themselves. We might look different on the outside, but on the inside, we're all clones with cold, dead hearts consumed with getting our own selfish needs and desires met. So what the world says is that you have to follow your heart to actually become your true, unique self, but what really happens is if you follow your heart, you just become like everybody else. So if we truly want to stand out and be different and have a truly unique identity, we actually have to die to what we thought life was. This is a key teaching of the gospel following Jesus Christ. Why do we have to die? Because that's the example Christ set. And this is the verse, and I didn't put in the reference here, I apologize. But unless, I think it's, I think it's like John 12 or something like that. But unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces a crop 30, 60, or 100 times what was sown. This is planting season, right? It's about time to get your garden in the ground if you haven't done it yet. We understand this principle based on how we watch things happen in the natural world. This is what Jesus was using as an example. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. So before death, before the death of that seed, the single seed exists only for itself. Right? So when you have a seed, before that seed dies, before you put it in the ground so that it, so that it can die, it exists only for itself. There's no other reason, no other existence for that, that seed except for itself. In the seed, it has all the potential to become a living thing. And it can become a living thing that produces fruit, but it cannot become a living thing to produce fruit until it dies. But if it dies then it can produce a crop. Not only does it produce a crop, it actually comes to life. So before it dies, it remains a single seed. The potential for life is there, but no life exists. But if it dies, it becomes a plant. It grows, and the result of that growth can be fruit. Before death, it was for itself, but now it has the potential to produce life. So we don't actually live until we die. Death precedes life. We don't think it's that way, but true life must follow death. It's not until we disown ourselves and our affections for ourselves, our worship of ourselves, and our feelings for ourselves that we're actually able to receive the gift of true life in our hearts. If we don't do that, if we don't disown ourselves, deny ourselves, then we risk prostituting the kingdom for selfish gain. In essence, we'll make God our servant, our genie in the sky, whose entire purpose for existence is to give us what we want. But if we die, when we die, when that part of us dies, then the truest form of life, God's life, can begin to take root in our heart. So that's the heart. Any questions on the heart, what the heart is, what the heart does?
Good, I'll take your silence to mean that I'm doing a, a tremendous job explaining all of this. All right, now I want to cover the three states of the heart as I've, as I've been looking at them. I tried to get them to all start with the same letter, but it just didn't work. I had to compromise the meaning of one of the words, and I just didn't want to do that. So I'm going to look at three, three things, the deformed heart, the deformed heart, to be a little more accurate, the deceitful heart, and the hardened heart. All of us have at least a deformed heart and a deceitful heart. This is, this is the state of our, our fallenness in, in uh, the kingdom now, in the world. We're fallen, and this is our state. So the first one is what I'm calling the deformed heart. Hardened. Third one is hardened heart. So this is what we've been kind of been talking about for the last couple of weeks. We're born in a state of rebellion. That, that it doesn't take long before you see, if, you have, if you're a parent with kids, that you can see that, that, that we exist for ourselves. I'm not going to get into the whole argument for that. But we've also been talking about how, as grown-ups, as people, that the more input we receive from the world, the more deformed our hearts will be. So the more we're receiving input from, from sources that are, that are at best ambivalent towards God or at worst opposed to God, the more deformed our hearts will become. So they'll start to take away the shape that they were designed for. On the contrary, the more input we have from God, then the more formed our hearts will become. The more we are invested in God and his ways and his kingdom and his habits and his purposes, the more like Christ's heart, our hearts will become. Now, a lot of the spiritual formation books, which is what we're talking about, argue that, there are, that our spirits are being constantly formed and it's, it's whether or not our spirit is being formed into the, into the spirit of Christ or into the spirit of the world. But I don't think, I don't think that's true. I, I, and I, they're a lot smarter than me, so they can, they, can, they can argue with me if they have a problem with it. <clears throat> but some of them are dead, so it's not going to happen. But um, I don't think that our spirits are constantly being formed either by God or by the world. I think our spirits are only formed by God, and if it is not God forming our spirits, then they are being deformed by the world. That, that God has a design for how the heart is supposed to work, and when God is at the center of everything, it kind of comes together in this unique, amazing fashion, and it works together like it's supposed to, but when we, start, when we start allowing ourselves to be under the influence and input of people who, who are opposed to God, then what happens is our hearts actually start to deform and break apart from how God designed it. I don't think it's formation because that implies the idea that you can just choose your path of spiritual formation and in the end everything is okay. We're either being spiritually formed how God designed us to be formed or we're being deformed. And this all started in the garden when we rebelled against God, when Adam and Eve decided to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat, and they sinned against God, and their hearts were then deformed. And you see, it didn't take long before we get, you know, that's Genesis chapter 2. By Genesis chapter 6, everything's fallen apart, and God regrets 
that he made human beings. That's the deformed heart at work. The second is deceitful. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The mantra of our day is listen to your heart. Be true to your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants. And you cannot change what the heart wants. And you have to give the heart what it wants because the heart wants what it wants. There is truth in that statement. The heart wants what it wants. If you want something, oftentimes that's coming from your heart. If not all the time, it's coming from our hearts. The heart wants what it wants. But that does not mean that we cannot change the desires of our hearts, and more correctly, that God can change and shape the desires of our hearts. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. The problem is we don't take delight in the Lord, and if we were taking delight in the Lord, then the desire of our heart would be for us to have more of the Father and more of God in our lives. We're not delighting in the Lord, we're delighting in ourselves, we're listening to our own hearts, we're being true to our own hearts, we're, we're letting our heart what it wants, and we're trying to take that to God and said, you said you would give me the desires of my heart, well, I want a new car, I want a new house, I want a new job, I want these new things, and you said you would give it to me if my heart really desired it, well, my heart wants it, why haven't you given it to me? Because we're not delighting in the Lord and letting him change the desires of our heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Our hearts lead us astray because there are things that our hearts want that aren't of God. Our hearts want things that, that are selfish in nature, that feed ourselves and our own egos. This is what our hearts are doing to us, and our hearts are lying to us, thinking and, and convincing us that these are the things that we really need because we haven't allowed yet God to shape and mold and transform our heart. So should you listen to your heart? Maybe, but you better check it first. Should you be true to your heart? Probably not, unless you've spent a lot of time following Jesus, because a lot of time our heart leads us away from God the heart wants what it wants. Yeah, your heart might want some things, but should you want those things or should you let God change the desires of your heart? Our heart lies to us all the time and then the lies of the world get into our hearts and then these lies of the world that get into our hearts then weave their way throughout the rest of our body. I've got a diagram I'd like for us to look at really quick. This is uh, Dallas Willard in his book, um, the Reformation of the Heart I'm working through right now. Um, so he, the spirit in the, in the middle is what he, he's referring to as the heart. The heart slash will. You can't really read it on there. Um, so the left side is the word and spirit of Christ enters. And then it comes out through, works its way out through our mind, our body, our social, and then our soul, which he's explaining as something that extends beyond us into the world around us and this that's a complex thing that we're not going to talk about quite yet but but the spirit or the heart the will the desire right so the heart and the desires of the heart is at the very center of everything we do and then it works out through our entire being so if 
the, if the Word and the Spirit of Christ are entering into our heart, then that will come out through our mind, body, social, and soul uh, experiences in life. But if it's not entering, if there are other things, then there will be other things that are coming out through our lives as well. And so we need Christ to actually reshape and change our hearts if we want to be different people. The heart is deceitful and above all things and, be, and beyond cure, who can understand it? The last one is hardened hearts. This one is complex, but a hardened heart, we think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. If you want to go read the story of Pharaoh and his hardened heart, you can go to Exodus chapter 8 and work through 11, and then again in 13, um, you can see more of the hardening of the heart and how God hardened their hearts, and that's, a, again, another complex thing for us to take on in one setting. But um, the hardened heart, at first we see that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So God chose Moses to be his messenger to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go, right? This is the story that we're all pretty familiar with. Moses didn't want to do it, and so he took Aaron with him to speak, but, at the, but God sent Moses and Aaron to say, let my people go, and then Pharaoh hardened his heart, didn't listen to the messenger of God, rejected what the messenger of God was telling him to do, rebelled, did his own thing, and so then God brought a plague. Same thing. Let my people go, he hardens his heart. Plague number two, plague number three, plague number four, about the time six or seven, we start to see that God gets involved in the process of hardening Pharaoh's hearts, Pharaoh's heart, especially towards the end with the 10th plague, God hardened his heart. But his heart was hardened, which means he did not receive God's messenger and obey it. So I think if we're looking at the idea of the hardened heart, we have to look at submission, which is a word nobody wants to talk about today. Submission. It's not a popular term. It's not a popular idea to talk about submitting. Our culture in particular hates the idea of submission. We won't even get to the Wives, submit to your husband's argument. We'll save that for another day. Submission. Submission is the beginning, I think, of a relationship with God. That if we're going to follow God, we actually have to submit to God. I've heard people tell me, give me the argument, I, I, I follow God, I just do it in my own way. I follow God, I just kind of, I have my own way of following God. Well, you're not following God if that's what you're doing. You're following yourself. You are your own God, and you're telling God how to work in your life that makes you God, not God God. You have not yet submitted to God. So Pharaoh, I would say, is a perfect example of someone who was not willing to submit to God's message that was sent to him through Moses. If he had submitted, he may have saved all of the plagues. From happening, he may have saved the firstborn from dying. There may have been a lot of pain that they could have avoided if he had listened to God's messenger, but he didn't. He hardened his heart. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19 says, So I tell you this, this is Paul talking to the church at Ephesus. 
I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So there is a way of thinking. Gentiles references people who are not in Christ, who are not a part of Christ. There is a way of thinking that exists in people who are not of Christ that is futile. It's futile to think the way that those who aren't in Christ are thinking. So we've got to pay attention to our thinking. They are darkened, talking about those who are not in Christ. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because, here's why they're separated, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they gave themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. So when our hearts are hard, we're not open to the things of God, we lose all sensitivity, and we give ourselves over to sensuality, not only just the way of thinking of the world, but the way of acting and living out those desires in the world, and we indulge in every kind of impurity, and we're full of greed. That's what happens when our hearts are hard. Our hearts are hard to the things of God. But there's a a scary thing that's also true. We see in the New Testament that the hardening of the heart is something that can happen to the Christian heart. That the Christian heart, the heart of somebody who believes in Christ, can become hard. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 it's actually, I think, seven, verse 7 through 20 or so, but this is verse 12 and 13. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He's talking to people who have chosen to follow Christ, talking to believers, and he says, See to it, brothers and sisters. That's how they refer to people in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is still called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So I think there are two things for followers of Jesus Christ that can lead to the hardening of the Christian heart. The first one is sin. The second one is resisting the Holy Spirit. The first, let's talk about the second one, resisting the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. There are lots of passages that talk about resisting the Holy Spirit or grieving the Holy Spirit, and we don't have time to get into them all today, but just a quick overview, big picture idea for, for resisting the Holy Spirit is that when you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and that, that gift is there to help you live out the Christ-like life. And so as you're living out the Christ-like life, then you have the Spirit at work in your heart, in your life, prompting you towards what is right and away from what is wrong. So the Holy Spirit then leads us towards Christ and away from sin. And you will hear the Holy Spirit in your heart when you are headed towards sin say, hey, don't go there turn around, go a different direction, don't move towards that thing. You will feel the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart when it comes to sin, and oftentimes we resist and our hearts get hard. Similarly, 
the Holy Spirit will move us to do good things, to, uh, to express the love of Christ to a non-believing world, and that Spirit will prompt us to do acts of kindness and generosity and compassion and justice and all of these things. And the Spirit prompts us to do these things, and we, when we resist, our hearts become hard. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The first one, sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So we can see even in the garden, which we've talked about before, that that in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He started calling out, where are you? Looking for Adam and Eve to start to draw out a confession of the sin to God to to start the work of restoring the relationship that had been broken by sin. God desires to restore us into a right standing, a right relationship with us, and as long as there is sin there, it hardens our heart. And sin and pride become layers on our heart that actually make our heart harder and harder and harder and create more distance between us and God. And so some of us may need to confess some sin so that we can get rid of some of those layers so that God has more access to our heart. A lot more to that. I don't have time to get into it this morning. The last one I want to look at is what I'm calling the unblemished heart. This is the heart of Jesus. The unblemished heart, the heart of Christ. If you read through the Gospels and you start looking at the heart of Christ, which is where we're going to be turning our attention in the weeks to come, you'll start to see what motivated Jesus. Jesus was motivated by a very specific thing. His motive was to do the will of the Father. John chapter 4, verse 34 says, Jesus, when the disciples were wondering what had happened because Jesus didn't want their food that they went into town to get, and Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food... Food is a thing that we put into our stomachs. Stomachs are something that in Scripture is used to talk about the desires, the urges, the wanting of our life. And so my food, my desire is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. I do nothing on my own, but I just speak what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me, the Father, is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus' very words about what he does in his life, in his life on the earth, was to always do what pleases the Father. The unblemished heart desires the Father, desires to please the Father, desires to work out its, its life for the Father. John fourteen sixteen.
Yeah. And I think if we, if we read through the Gospels, you'll see this is a theme for the whole of Jesus' ministry beginning to end. But this creates a problem for us. We're not really comfortable with the idea of living our whole lives for the pleasure of the Father. We want our own pleasures to be met, our own desires to be met and fulfilled. We see this, by the way, this is how God wired us even in our physical life. Um, my own kids have had a desire to please me. I have a desire to please my father. Some of us with, with good fathers who did a great job raising us have a desire to please our good fathers. And some of us who were raised with bad fathers or no fathers suffer from a hole that we feel in our hearts because we never really got to experience the joy of pleasing our fathers. I would love for somebody to do a scientific study on the effects of fatherhood and the brain. I think that would be intriguing to know how that works. Jesus wanted to please the Father, but we are not really comfortable with living our whole lives for the pleasure of the Father. But we see, I think, even in the very basic form and function of how God designed the family to work, that we exist to please the Father. This was what Jesus' heart was, the Father pleasing the Father, and everything he did flowed out of that desire to please, to honor, to worship, to point people towards the Father. So to have a heart like Christ is to have a heart whose sole motive is to love the Father. The desire of our heart is to know him, to, to worship him, to honor him, to glorify him, to be, like we talk about David, a man after God's own heart. Why? Because that's how God made us. And not only did God make us to love him with our whole hearts, but at the same time, God made us to enjoy us with his whole heart. God made us for his pleasure. God made us for his pleasure, and he made all of these things around us for us to enjoy, but they're all supposed to point us to the Father to enjoy the Father and the relationship with the Father. They were never supposed to be the thing that we enjoyed in and of themselves. They were always only to point us to the Father, to enjoy Him. This was our original design. This was how Adam and Eve were made in the garden, to have an intimate relationship with the Father, walking with God in the cool of the day and talking with Him face to face. This is how God wants us to live. He wanted us from beginning to end, you can see the story of this, that from beginning to end, his desire was to be our God and for us to be his people. We see it from Genesis, I think chapter 17 is the first time that idea is brought up, and then it's all the way in Revelation chapter one and everywhere in between, God wants to be our God and for us to be his people. This is what it means to be like Christ, to have a heart like Christ, to glorify him, honor him, worship him, submit to him, surrender everything in our lives to our good, good father.
Any questions? That's a complex question. I th <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think there are, there are, I would argue there are parts of our conscience that have, have not been affected by the fall and that all of us probably have some desires in us. Every human being hardwired with a desire for the right things. And over time, those become numb and we stop listening to them more and more and it becomes easier to ignore and to reject those things and that as a result of our hearts being deformed it becomes easier and easier to reject the impulse to do right and accept the impulse to do wrong but yes I would argue that everyone being made in God's image is hardwired with a conscience to do right things we just choose to rebel against that it's my short answer Jim probably has a much better answer to that question you can talk to him afterwards any other questions? Yeah, that's good. It's a good observation. You know the thoughts, questions, or comments? Yeah, I would probably say about the same thing, that, that Pharaoh had a choice. I really believe Pharaoh had a choice to a point to accept the message of Moses and, and, not, and not go down the path they were going down, to continue to keep God's people in slavery. But I think once, to me, you know, I would, I would say that once it got to a certain point, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and then God just took over so I'm going to see this. You know, I've got to. I'm going to see this thing out to this plan, your fulfillment or completion, and then we're getting into discussions about predestination and all of that stuff, which is really fun. Um, but um, you could argue. I think you could argue from the the argument of predestination that God saw Pharaoh's heart was always going to stay hard. And so he contributed to the hardening of his heart so he could make that theological argument. I think we just read it as, as it's written in scripture. God hardened his heart after Pharaoh had hardened his heart a number of times. And there's a reason for that. And, and it's probably to eventually get to the point where Pharaoh is, and his army is destroyed. 
so that there wouldn't be an Egyptian army constantly chasing God's chosen people out through the wilderness and all the different things. Yeah, Nick. Now, there are definitely parts of that in there. Peter. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, every plague was, was defeating one of the gods that they worshipped, and Pharaoh himself had, was in a position of calling himself a god, the, a god of the people. And in fact, one of the reasons God was so offended by what the what the Israelites did whenever Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and they came back down and out came this calf that whole story was because that calf was one of the gods that God had just defeated out of the out of the 10 plagues to show that he was the the power and ruler over that god he was more you know, more powerful than that and then they just turned right back to it so that's part of why God was so offended by that act good Anything else? One more, maybe? Yeah, surrender, I think, is the whole, is the starting point of it all. That, that we, I mean, that's why, I mean, that's why we have to, that's the dying of the seed, right? We have to, we have to, all the potential exists in every single, in every single human that is born on this planet, all the potential exists to, to grow into what God could make that life. Another theological argument we could get into there. But all the potential exists in every single human. But the only way for that potential to be realized is to surrender to God, which means to deny ourselves or disown ourselves or die to ourselves, put to death our own desires, what we think is what we really want, and to lay all of that down at the foot of the cross and, and surrender to say, okay, now, you know, however you want to use me, wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever it is you have for my life, I'm all in with you. So I think, I think surrender is the starting point, and that's really hard, especially in our society, to do because we don't really want to surrender. We just want God to uh, give His stamp of approval on the path we've already chosen. All right. Let's stand together and pray.
bow our, bow our heads, close our eyes. Give it a lot of content. But we want the Spirit to move and act in our hearts today. Heavenly Father, if we're here this morning and we've, we've kind of surrendered to the deformation of our hearts that we've just given over to the ideas of this world, the, the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of this life, whatever the issue may be, if we've just allowed the ideas and the philosophies and the empty philosophies of the futile thinking of this world to get into our minds and continue to deform us, unshape us, unmold us. Father, I pray in this moment that you would just start to bring those to light, shed your light, your gospel light, your truth, your true light on them. Not that we might feel condemned, but that we would be able to lay them down and to turn away from them, that we might know what they are Father, some of us in this room are dealing with deceitful hearts, our hearts constantly leading us astray, leading us to things that aren't you. I pray, Father, that you would start to expose the lies that we've believed in our heart. Expose the rebellion of our hearts. Expose the darkest parts Illuminate our hearts so that there's not even a shadow remaining. And anything that causes a shadow, any lie in our heart that once you shine a lie on it causes a shadow in other parts of our life, I pray, Father, that you continue to illuminate that, that we might do something with that, that we might lay that down, surrender that to you, to your lordship this morning. Father, if we have hardened our hearts, if we have rejected the Spirit's prompting away from sin and the prompting towards good things and, and mission and gospel motives and all the things that you want us to be doing and living out in our lives, I pray, Father, that you would just help us to confess those things to you this morning, that we would just say that we've been doing this or not doing these things and, and that it's made, us, made it hard for us to hear you speak to us. Father, bring those areas to mind, that, that area of sin that we continue to lean into, that you want us to actually resist, that you've given us the power to resist, and that you want us to walk away from. Father, give us the mind of Christ to see those things, the mind of Christ to see the good you want us to do. Father, I pray that you would just, in all of us this morning, start to work in us the unblemished heart of Christ, that, that our hearts would be shaped and molded and transformed by the work of the Spirit in us through our constant connection and relationship with you, through the community that we're in here at 6A Church and the family of believers that we're a part of, that, that through all of the things that you've established and put in, in place to mold and shape our hearts into your likeness, into your image, I pray, Father, that we would willingly submit and surrender to those things, and when we find ourselves resisting, that we would, that we would even repent of the resistance. 
But Father, I just pray for our hearts, that our hearts would just become more and more like your heart, that you would just give us more and more this, this heart of flesh that you want us to have and just continue to chip away, however painful it may be, chip away at our heart of stone and get rid of all of those things in us that are keeping us from living and looking and thinking and loving like you want us to be as your followers. Surrender our hearts to you today that you may do what you want to do with them. In Jesus' name, amen.